I wanted to start this morning with a, uh, a simple question to get things, uh, get things going, and that is, what would be a two-sentence summary of your life or your character? If someone just quickly off the cuff had to sum you up in a sentence or two, uh, what would they say? Maybe they'd say, Carrie. Uh, that guy was, uh, was fun. He, he, he liked cheeseburgers. <laughs> they say, Bob, oh, one of the best salesmen ever. Guy can sell anything. And he could ski. And he was a sharp dresser. Jenny, she was a good friend. Even better mother. What would be your, your summary? Now, I bring this up because as we come to the, the final section of Colossians, we tend to think there's really not much here for us because it's, it's the personal stuff at the end of a letter. It's, it's the wrapping up of, of the loose ends and, you know, the goodbyes and, the, uh, you know, just the pleasantries. Everybody's saying, hey, say hello to so-and-so and don't forget this. And then the end. The section is even titled by the editors, the, the final greetings, kind of implying that Paul is done with any formal instruction and, and teaching and practical advice. It's just the wrap-up of the, of the personal business. So many people really don't even preach this section. They kind of just end at 4 verse 6 because, you know, this stuff's not really for us. But I have to say, this is actually one of uh, my favorite parts of this letter. Yes, the material here is not you know, not as theological and not as uh, maybe directive as, as it comes to us, but, but it's so encouraging and challenging for us because here we get to see the people, don't we? We get to see the, the real lives kind of in and behind this letter. Paul sums up in about two sentences each no less than ten lives here. As he, as he closes the letter. And in them, we get to see the results. We get to see the, the kind of the fleshed out reality of the regular everyday people, everyday Christians like us, living out what Paul has been preaching and teaching in this letter. It just comes through in these greetings. Lives that are filled with the fullness of Christ as he's been preaching. Lives walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, bearing fruit in every good work. Lives rooted and built up, established in the faith. Lives that have died with Christ and are putting him on. They are ordinary lives of regular people that have been amazingly transformed as they've come to Jesus. And it's encouraging. It kind of reminds me of uh, Testimony Sunday here, right? We have the theology, all the teaching every Sunday, and then we have that Testimony Sunday where people get up here and we hear about their lives. And we see God's, the gospel, transforming work, and it's so encouraging. And there are three main kind of re qualities I noticed as we look through these lives, these, these three main qualities of kind of gospel transformation that are demonstrated here in these short summaries. So I want to go through them as we summarize their lives. And, and the first one is simply this. You'll notice 
that they are all living lives of gospel purpose. They're all different people with varying situations. We have Romans, Jews, prisoners, slaves, a woman from Laodicea, a doctor. But the work of the gospel is now shaping all their lives and priorities. God has gotten hold of them and saved them. And now he's using their regular lives, their average talents, for his amazing gospel work. Think of, let's start with... uh, Tychicus, the first guy in verse 7 there, first guy mentioned, let's read, says, Tychicus, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. This guy, from his name, is most likely Roman. He, he got saved a few years back and has been serving with Paul ever since. He's mentioned actually in four of Paul's letters and in the book of Acts. And we know from this that he accompanied Paul on many of his missionary adventures. We aren't told here of his uh, you know, familial status. We aren't told whether he's a husband, uh, whether he's a father. We aren't informed of his career, whether he's a soldier or a builder. Because the significant thing is that he is now, according to Paul, this is what Paul tells us, this is his summary. What does he say about him? He says he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. This is who he is now. You kind of look at that and you go, well, why and how? No, is this because he went to seminary? Because he acquired a... You know, all the theology that, of, of, of the apostle by hanging out with him? Is this because he's suddenly a gifted speaker that now he's this faithful minister, this fellow servant? No, note what it says. It says that all of this is, what's the end of the sentence? In the Lord. It's because he's a Christian. He's given his life over to Jesus, and it now defines his life's direction and the functional work of his life every day, his very purpose in this world. In the Lord, he's a beloved brother, a faithful servant, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. I was thinking that should kind of be the summary of all our lives. That should be kind of the epitaph, right? For every Christian. But of course, how did this, uh, the question I think is probably, how did this look in his life? What did this, what did this mean? I mean, he isn't the apostle writing sacred scripture. He isn't preaching brilliant sermons, at least that we know of. What is he actually doing in his faithful servanthood? Well, verse 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 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. You see, we, we know that he was the one sent with the letter. He did the same thing in Ephesus. You can go read 621. It says the exact same thing about him in Ephesians. He's, he's the postman. He's the mail delivery guy. He's been sent with Onesimus to bring this letter to the Colossians. And as he delivers it, he's to inform them 
probably as they ask questions as he reads the letter, what's going on with Paul and the gang in Rome and, and, and what's going on with the gospel work there? So that the Colossians may be encouraged in heart. I love this. It's, it's, uh, it's not flashy or special, is it? You know, he's, it's, it's about traveling dusty roads for hundreds of miles to bring a letter to just this small group meeting in somebody's home of believers. This is how he's spending his time and energy when he's not working to support himself. He's delivering Paul's mail. This is how he prioritizes his, his efforts and time. Remember last week, Paul challenged him in verse 5 to make the best use of the time. This is what he's doing. He's modeling it. The best use of the time for the gospel is he takes this, this menial task that's part of the great gospel mission, and he prioritizes it as a purpose in his life. And here's the amazing thing. It probably seemed like nothing to him. No big deal, just delivering the mail to this little church. But of course, this letter has passed, you know, at the end we see her to the Laodiceans, and then on to other churches, and then on again to other churches, all the way again and again for thousands of years, all the way down to us, and it's still going, it hasn't finished its work. What he delivered to them, he delivered to the world for all time. And the salvation outworkings of that will just echo into eternity. Think of the ex- all those lives that have been exhorted and changed and the multiplication of ministry through those lives because he was simply letting the gospel task shape the purpose and priorities of each of his days and just the regular stuff that needed done. And here, really, every person mentioned in this text is an example of this. Think of the guys mentioned in verse 10 and 11. Let's look there. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, that's the Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Did you catch that at the end of that sentence? It's pretty astonishing. These three men are the only Jewish Christians that have stuck with Paul through it all. The only ones that have stayed the course. And what are these stalwarts doing? What is mentioned in these two sentences? I mean, of all the things they could have said, he says, they're comfort to me. These are the guys, I picture these guys, these are his small group, these are his support group, these are the guys that are encouraging Paul, that are helping him up when he gets knocked down, that are praying for him, that are exhorting him. This is how the gospel task is being worked out in their lives It's as they support, kind of behind the scenes, Paul's apostolic endeavors. Remember, this includes Mark. Did you notice Mark there? That's Mark, 
the great gospel biographer of Jesus. What's he doing now? He's supporting Paul. He's comforting him. He's behind him. Just regular stuff that means everything. And then note Nympha in verse 15. It's not the greatest name. You don't hear a lot of Nymphas. But look at this. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. How has the gospel shaped her life and her purpose? It's, it's, it's taken over her home. <laughs> it's become the center of her hospitality. She's given over probably her, her greatest resource, her home, to be this gathering place for believers. And think about, you know, we all know the imposition of opening our homes and a lot bigger deal back then. They didn't have the you know, rec room over the garage. This was, this was everything. And it's risky to have a church meeting in your home in those days. But the gospel that brought her life is her life now. It defines her purpose, her very home. I love these little summaries. What would be the two-sentence summary? Would it be like, hey, you know, that guy's busy. Or that guy's a smart, smart investor, loved the lake. How about, oops, how about something like, Always comforting and supporting gospel workers like Aristarchus and Mark. How about something like gave over their home and resources for the gospel like Nympha? You know, it wasn't long ago uh, that we had over 500 people packed in this church for uh, Caleb Christensen's funeral for his uh, celebration of his life. And what was the summary? If you were here, what was the summary that kept coming up for his life? The refrain in testimony after testimony about Caleb. It wasn't about his athletic prowess in high school. It wasn't about his, his carpentry skills as a builder. If you're here, you know. People kept saying, that guy was a faithful servant. And just give examples of it. They would just say, man, he was at King's Club every week helping out with the neighborhood kids. They'd say, man, he opened up his home. They had a small group that met in his home. He was always at men's Bible study, encouraging, exalted, faithful servant. That was the summary. Regular, amazing stuff. But you know, there's another characteristic of these early Christians' transformed lives that we see here. It's not just that they, they had gospel purpose to their lives, but also that they lived knit together in gospel love. This is what the Colossians uh, are commended for at the beginning of this book. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul talks about how he and the guys up in Rome had heard of their love for all the saints. It's kind of their reputation out there, that they have this incredible love for all the saints. But then Paul, in chapter 2, verse 21, actually says this is what he's struggling for for them. So what he says, chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love 
to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He wants to be knit together in their relational care and love, and this would lead to a full understanding of who Christ is. He wants that loving body, that unity they have, to teach them about Christ. And this is what we see modeled here in these lives mentioned in these final greetings. This knitted gospel love for each other. It's interesting. We see it, first of all, just in like the titles or, or the descriptions that, that Paul uses for each one of them. You know, Tychicus, however you say his name, is, is a beloved brother and fellow servant. Onesimus, verse, verse 9, right? He's, he's the bondservant. What does it say? Our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Aristarchus and, and Mark and Justice, they're called fellow workers of the kingdom. Epaphras in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. Finally, Luke, again, the writer of the gospel, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. They are one, they are family. They're all fellow workers, beloved brothers and sisters, and you can kind of hear the affection in these titles. You can hear the affection as they're greeting one another. And notice how this this loving unity sits over race and, and status. We read right past it because we're not in tune with them culturally, but, you know, the names here, right? I mean, they're, they're Jews and they're Romans hanging out together. Uh, if you knew, you'd know that's a big deal. They're slaves and doctors, women and men, all fellowshipping together, all fellow servants, beloved brothers and sisters. And as Paul puts it, they're one of you. This should be the standout feature of every Christian church, shouldn't it? This love in Christ that knits us together beyond race and gender and social status. This knitted love is demonstrated also in their desire to know about each other's lives. Why did Paul send Tychicus? Again, verse 8. What's the purpose? I, sent, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. You see, their connectedness wasn't really just at this surfacey level. No, they wanted to really know about each other's lives and circumstances. That's the kind of love they had. They wanted to be able to encourage and support and, and comfort so they could bear each other's burdens and share each other's joys. They wanted to know about each other's lives. I, I'm always amazed at how many people today want to be part of a a church, they want to come be part of a church at a distance. They want to come in and, you know, peek in for a Sunday morning, listen to a little sermon and slip out the back, maybe a Sunday or two a month. I remember meeting this couple at a party and they, they started telling me about their church and, and how they were involved. And at one point I said, oh yeah, where do you go? What's the name of it? Oh, what is it, honey? Oh, it's, uh, and neither of them could tell me the name. I, we had a, I had a family come along here for a while, and, and they said, they were leaving, we asked why, and they said, well, it's just too, too, too close. We don't want to really <laughs> be that involved. It's, 
We want to, this is what online churching facilitates, isn't it? Just church at a distance, don't really have to know. Don't have to get that involved in people's lives. My friends, this is why we have small groups, right? And why we encourage you to be in small groups, so you can know each other. I can't encourage you when I don't know you and I don't know you're down. You, you can't exhort me when you don't know my struggles. And we definitely can't correct and teach each other when we don't know what's going on in each other's lives. We haven't even earned that. This doesn't really happen in a group of 300, does it? We need to pursue each other, pursue real knowledge of each other's lives. That's what that knitted together love is. So we can practice that unity we have in Christ. This is why we have missionary updates and, and letters in the signal prayer group. So that we can keep track of what's going on with the Tangways and the Bogards and the Mallets. So we can be knitted, have them knitted in to our group. We can care for them and love them. And like these guys, we can send affectionate, real affectionate greetings and pray for them. And finally, I think we see the knitted love here in their relational grace for each other. You notice that here? Onesimus, if you noticed uh, a few weeks back, Jay preached on Philemon, which tells the story of Onesimus. He's the bond servant who would run away and apparently had stolen from his master, Philemon. But he met Paul in prison and he became a Christian. And so he's returned to reconcile with Philemon, who's also become a Christian. And they're reconciled. And Paul reminds the church here, this is why he says to him, look what he says. He is one of you. He's a beloved brother. And they receive him. Think of Mark here. Did you notice that? The little thing in parentheses about Mark. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. What's that about? Well, 12 years earlier, uh, Paul and Mark had had a bit of a sharp disagreement and a parting of ways. And apparently word has gotten out that, you know, hey, Mark's not in good standing in some way. But what does he say here? I know you've received instruction about him, but if he comes, welcome him. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a knitting love that shows this gracious, reconciling way with each other. It's always looking to put things right. That's unique in this world, by the way. This world of rights and self-protection. Oh, we love in grace. So the question for all of us is, are we knitted in here at CTR in this kind of love? Is this your loving family? Are you known? Do you know others here in a real and personal way? And if not, why? And what can you do to change that? Are, are, are you relationally gracious, always looking to work things out and to reconcile do you feel like a, 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 a beloved brother or sister, a, a fellow worker? It's who we are in Christ. 
and it's, uh, it's who we should be. It's, it's really our, our privilege and our blessing. And finally, I want to point out one last characteristic of, the, of these, of these kind of gospel-transformed lives, and that is they work for each other's spiritual progress and growth. This is what we see modeled in Epaphras here. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for the Laodiceans and, and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Epaphras, we know from chapter 1, is the guy who, who brought the gospel to Colossae. He, he had been up in Ephesus, I believe, and, and heard uh, Paul's preach. He got saved, and he took the gospel back to his hometown in Colossae. And out of his proclamation, this little church sprung up. And then it seems that he, that he, he took a trip back t- to see Paul and to report on how things are going at the church. I think that's how Paul found out about the false teaching that was going on. And while he's there, Paul witnessed his incredible work for them, how hard he worked, how he struggled for them. And what does Paul see this in? How does he witness it? Verse 12. He sees it in his prayers, how he prays for them. I bet there was a, a, a small group up there in Rome of Paul and Mark and Luke and Justice and Epaphras, maybe a few others, struggling in prayer for the churches, knowing in Colossae that they were under attack from false teaching, knowing they were vulnerable as new believers, and they prayed for their protection and their growth, that they would come to maturity in Christ. And no one prayed harder than Epaphras. The Greek word Paul uses for his struggle is best translated here, agonized. He agonized, pleading before God for his brothers and sisters, probably each one of them by name. Taking that knowledge he has of their, of their lives because he knows them and lifting them up. It's amazing in one sense, but in another sense, it's very regular stuff. This isn't about being his special gifting, isn't it? It's not about his unique personality. It's about being willing to work and struggle in prayer. It's, it's totally egalitarian. Anyone can pray like this. We can all struggle for each other in this way. We just have to love each other enough, and we've got to depend on the Spirit. Paul said back in Colossians 1.29, when he speaks of his struggle for them, for this I toil, struggling with all his, that's the Lord's, energy, that he powerfully works within me. We have to depend on the Lord. My friends, these are regular, amazing Christian lives, lives of people transformed by the gospel. Lives lived in gospel purpose, lives lived knit together in love as God's people, Lives working and struggling for each other's spiritual growth, especially in prayer. 
And I find this so encouraging, especially that we kind of see it inadvertently, you know, in these final greetings, because it's evidence of what Paul said in chapter 1. He started this book to saying, the gospel is growing, bearing fruit in this world and in you. That's what he said to him in chapter 1. It's growing, it's bearing fruit in this world and in you. And we see it happening here. You see, Paul may be in change, which is, by the way, what he reminds them of as, as he finished this, this book. Look at the last verse. I, Paul, write these greetings with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul may be in chains, but the gospel is not. It's doing its work in them. It's transforming them. And it's spreading to the world as they go out, as this letter is shared from church to church, and the letters, all the letters are shared through the churches, all the way down to us. My friends, will will your regular life be gospel amazing in purpose, in knitted love, in struggle for each other's growth? It's not a given. There's a couple names here. Do you notice the name Demas? He's greeted along with Luke. What do we learn about him later? He fell in love with the world and he abandoned Paul. Notice the church at Laodicea. What do we learn about them in the book of Revelation? They go lukewarm. It's not a given to keep living lives worthy of the gospel. Right? Keep being rooted and built up in the gospel. Keep exhorting one another. What will be the two-sentence summary of this church. What will be the two-sentence summary of your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we read these letters, we're not just reading uh, kind of dry theology. We're reading fleshed out, real life stuff. It's written to regular people just like us, regular people transformed by your Son. Lord, I pray as we head into this summer, we would be regular people, but living amazing, transformed lives through you. In your Son's name, amen.